And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 10, verse 23 and 24. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Hang on a second. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God? How difficult. This is literally the opposite word from what I've heard many, many times in my life on the lips of many different Christians about how easy it is supposed to be to lay hold of eternal life, right? How many of you have heard sometime how easy it is? Okay, well, just a few of you at least. Well, for you who have... (laughs) um, It's sort of the popular message that goes around. Like, look, just believe one simple thing in your mind and eternity and eternal life and eternal bliss are, are yours. Now, as my wife will often correct me, I'm often prone to sort of overstatement. So let me do put in a careful footnote to say, there is, of course, a kernel of truth in that, right? That when we look at the eternal picture of things, the great, enormous debt of sin, and how easily it can be forgiven for us by simply turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, at some level, it is very, very easy to be saved. So that is an important footnote. But one of the um, benefits of preaching through the whole witness of scriptures as we have assigned in our lectionary is the scriptures give us all different kinds of vantage points on what it looks like to be a Christian and to live the Christian life. And um, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that one of the great things about Christian truth is it's not that we have sort of um, teaching on different ends of a spectrum and we kind of round each other off into some sort of golden mean or something. That as Christians, we hold sort of all the truths of the scriptures, even when they stand as opposites, sort of with all their strength. And it's in that sort of dynamic tension that the earnest, real Christian life can be brought forward and lived out. So I want to pay attention to this passage this morning, which doesn't say that it's easy to be saved, right? It says it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. So keep coming and inevitably we'll hear, we're going to work through Romans, I'm sure, at some point, and it'll say, just confess with your lips. Like salvation is that close at hand. It just takes a confession of the lips. And then I'll preach on how easy it is. But for today, I want to actually look at what is difficult. Because even to mention that it's difficult to get into the kingdom of heaven is something of a paradigm shifter, right? I think deep down, my experience is in my flesh, in my heart, I sort of think that maybe God, maybe the prophets are just sounding a bit too severe. I'm sure, after all, it's pretty easy to get into heaven. But our master, our Lord, doesn't say that. He says it's difficult. And when we hear something described as difficult, that should lead us to lean in to a passage like this and say, okay, well, what are the conditions? If it's difficult, I want to know how to attain the kingdom of God, how to receive eternal life. I think especially given the context of what a great guy this was who approached Jesus. I think there's a handful of ways we try and slip out of the plain meaning of this passage. One of which is to sort of assume this guy is some sort of hypocrite or something. But the text actually, Jesus encounters a lot of hypocrites, the Pharisees, right? And we know how he deals with them. This is a different kind of interaction. We see this man's actually really earnest. He runs up and falls to his knees. 
And he doesn't ask, like so many people who encounter Jesus who ask for something from him, right? Lord, please heal this person. Lord, I need, I need some help over here. He just comes actually asking for the pearl of great price, right? He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? His, his, um, his vision is rightly set. He knows what he needs. And he's come to the right place. And he's come earnestly, like I have been preaching about in recent sermons, about earnestly approaching the Lord Jesus. Not only earnest with his heart, but earnest with his life. He is a faithful to the covenant he was under, the covenant of Moses. He's been keeping the commandments. The Lord lists the, the second half of the Ten Commandments that have to do with how we deal with each other. He says, teacher, I've, I've been doing those things. He has an upright life. And again, he's not being hypocritical because it says, very, I love this detail in the Gospel. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Right? What a great little sort of six-word description of the character of our master. If this man was being a hypocrite, it wouldn't have said that he looked at him and loved him, right? When Jesus encounters hypocrites, he comes at him pretty hard, right? Because he wants them to repent too, and he knows that they need a, a rebuking word. He receives this man's confession. And the man's coming with wealth would have surely looked very appealing to the disciples, right? To the apostles. They said, hey, this is a really rich guy. That would really help our mission, I'm sure that uh, on all sides they're like, this is like the best candidate of someone who's approached Jesus yet. Earnest, seeking the right thing, got some means to help out. Um, who of us could even say that much for ourselves, right? In terms of earnestness. And yet, this is the very man who in this interaction with Jesus leaves dejected. Doesn't end up responding to the call and sort of by connection doesn't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we don't know about his later life. Maybe at some other point in life he does have a change of mind, a repentance. But we don't know. At this juncture, he is outside the gates of heaven. Um, I would ask a rhetorical why, but it's really obvious because this is a famous story, right? Because of his riches and because he wouldn't let go of them. He could not give them away as Jesus asked him to do. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And one of the things that convicts me about this passage is Jesus doesn't say, Take what loose cash you have on hand after you've paid all your bills and give to the poor. Right? He says, liquidate your capital. Sell all you have and give that to the poor. Jesus goes on to say that um, this man's reaction, who's come with wealth and now then leaves Jesus, Jesus says it's typical. He says this is, this is how it always is with riches how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It was the man's wealth that actually sort of encumbered him and weighed him down from being able to lay a hold of Jesus as his master and the spiritual benefits that would come from that, entering the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus draws the famous analogy. We know it's actually sort of, um, it's like a saying in, in Jesus' day. Like if you wanted to say something was really hard, you said, like a camel through the eye of a needle. It was a saying for something that was sort of absurd and, and actually impossible. Um, and just in case you missed the point, right, because not many of us are, do uh, needlework anymore, right? I have a needle. Camel's the biggest animal on hand in Judea, right? Jesus is using a figure of speech that says it's, it actually has an absurd quality, right? This is impossible. There's no way that a camel will ever get through the eye of a needle, ever, there's no way that a rich man will be saved according 
to, to nature, according to sort of what man is able to do on his own, only if God transforms a rich man's heart. Right? With God, it's possible. But only if there's a, an inner miracle is it possible. Now, just to be clear, the Bible isn't saying that, therefore, the poor automatically get into heaven. There are plenty of poor who are just as wicked as the rich who can be wicked. Right? So poverty doesn't get you into heaven. Jesus is just saying that riches can be a bar to heaven. And this is frankly just really rough teaching. And the disciples themselves were astonished, right? They were greatly astounded. Um, I prefer the translation as I look through the Greek, flabbergasted. And part of that, right, is because all through all along, through sort of what we see generally as an Old Testament um, motif of God's dealings with his people is that the ones God favors get lots of material blessings, right? Their paradigm was, it's a good thing to be rich. So Jesus is speaking against everything that we sort of have both by instinct and by Old Testament, some of the Old Testament um, paradigm of the value of riches. And so that's why they reply, okay, God, then who can be saved? Right? They're not asking a rhetorical question. They're saying, Jesus, the rich are the ones that God's clearly smiling on. Like, we would expect them to be saved. They're the ones supporting synagogue and hospital. Like, they're the ones, surely, who would be saved if anybody. Their astonishment is real. I think, actually, we are so astonished when we read this passage that we just try and wiggle out of its plain meaning. Um, by two um, tactics, actually, which I've heard in various settings. Um, how many of you have ever heard teaching or a sermon about how the inner gate of a big gate is called the eye of a needle? Yeah, I heard that too. Um, it's not. <laughs> big gates do have inner gates. That's a thing. But there's not a language on earth in any culture in history that's ever called that inner gate the eye of a needle. Do you know who came up with that idea? A very wealthy Christian who was musing in the Middle Ages. Maybe this was something. Uh, and then it was picked up on by a 19th century preacher who was very popular, and now we've all heard it. And how convenient, because, well, uh, a camel, you know, if it just gets off its packet, well, it could go through the small gate. Whew, problem solved. Riches aren't a barrier anymore. Right? We, we wiggle our way out. Um, but even apart from sort of academic study of the ancient Near East and what gates are called, <laughs> Jesus says he's trying to give an analogy of what's impossible. Right? He says in verse 27, um, with man, with mortals, it's impossible. If this was a common day figure for camels squeezing through small gates, Jesus wouldn't say it's impossible. Right? He would say it's just kind of difficult. But here he's, he's saying it's impossible. Also, camels have their knees, their back knees are turned the other way around, so they can't really walk when they're kneeled down. So that's another problem. But, um, but the popularity of this interpretation reveals that we want to just dodge this teaching. We're like, okay, Jesus, it's too strong. Can we, do, can we interpret it like this so it misses us? And we do the, another thing we do is, um, and I've been tempted to think this myself, like, well, this was one very particular case of one very particular man. Surely this call is not universal. Dodge. But after rebuking the particular man, Jesus then says to his disciples, the ones who he's trying to teach, how difficult it will be for those, plural, right? He doesn't say, man, that guy, rough case, right? Those, plural, who have wealth. As Jesus is always doing, he's having a particular exchange and offering an eternal teaching from out of that exchange. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth. 
So the upsetting thing about this gospel, and believe you me, sometimes as a preacher, I read the gospel and I'm like, oh Lord, another hard word for us, your people, right? But there it is in the, in the scripture, so we can't ignore it. And we can't wiggle our way out through some fancy interpretation. Just like the disciples, we are right to be sort of astounded by this teaching. So what are we to do with being astounded? Um, what difficulty might we be willing to bear to enter the kingdom of heaven? So this is where I want to end, is getting very practical. Um, and one thing I've learned about the South in particular is, and this is actually a good thing, is that um, honor is a real part of life down here. And I love that. Um, and having honor is a good thing, but we can hitch honor to the wrong things. And one of the things I think we're tempted to hitch honor onto is our societal rank, our wealth. And so one of the things that I do, which I know is upsetting, but I'll keep doing it, (laughs) is to always use dollar amounts when talking about money. Because it's one of the ways we can deface the idol of mammon. Because mammon is always asking for our worship. And so I always want to be taking the chisel to its face and saying, no, 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 we will not worship you, mammon. So I want to use some dollar amounts. And I want to be really specific because if we're not specific about wealth, we can err in a couple of ways. We could feel guilty about things we're not supposed to feel guilty for. Just some vague sense of, oh, I'm probably rich and that's probably bad. More commonly, we might actually sort of just draw the bar in as to whatever income bracket is above us and say, well, I'm not rich because I'm not in that bracket. So let me offer some practical thoughts. How do we define rich? Because if we are rich, um, Jesus' teaching comes hard against us, right? That it's calling us to something strong. So let me say this. The Bible also says in 1 Timothy that whoever doesn't take care of their family is worse than an unbeliever. Right? So here we have a truth. Like, well, you've got to have money to take care of your family, right? So we do have a sort of composite picture, a composite witness of scriptures that we need to hold in view. So let me just start at the bottom. Um, the federal government says you can't take care of your family financially if you make less than $34,000 a year. That's the Medicaid uh, bracket, um, top cap. People say that's too low. I think it is. It's probably more like 40000 take home. Um, just to be able to just scrape by and sort of with the, with the general needs of health care and the things that are needed for a healthy, sustained life. So I think if you're sort of around or below that bracket, in this context, I don't think you are the rich. I think this teaching um, doesn't hit squarely on the nose. Above that, I think there's this gray zone of specific discernment. I looked at a bit of research for today's sermon. Um, the median household income for earning households in this country, um, pre-tax, is $77,000. So that's just a number. But in the wealthiest country in the world, if that's the median, if you're above the median, probably that means you might be among the rich. And again, I'm just trying to give some guidelines for concrete thought about this. Median wealth, so not income, but money that you have, wealth that you have in hand, um, excluding home equity, okay, so savings, retirement, cars that you could sell, that sort of thing. Median wealth for adults between 35 and 75 in this country, net wealth, is $25,000. It's a number in the, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Uh, again, if you're above the median, I think that should just leave, leads to some reflection of like, maybe I am, maybe Jesus is t- talking to me as among the rich. I think if you fall below the median, it doesn't actually get you off the hook entirely. 
Right? You know my salary because you approve it. I'm below the median. But I think one of the false distinctions in our sort of way we speak about money these days is we talk about the 1% as the obscenely wealthy. And then because we're in the 99%, well, maybe we're not so wealthy. But that's just here, here in America, right? If we extend the view globally, um, if you make more than $32,000 a year, you're in the 1% globally. The 1% globally. Let that sink in a bit. Median household income, when you factor in purchasing power parity, all that economic stuff, is a shade under $10,000 a year. It's the median for the world. So when you put it in cost of the big world, I'm still five to six times richer than your average human being who are brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve in this world. Which means Jesus' words still actually are leveled at me and us who might fall below the median numbers. In other words, despite whatever my experience of sort of finances are in the day-to-day, in the month-to-month, trying to meet, make ends meet, the fact is, is just living in this country, most of us, I think, are in the sights of when Jesus is talking about the rich. So if we're listening to Jesus, right, we call him our master, we have to listen to what he says. We can't dodge our way out of it. Um, I think it's right to be somewhat uncomfortable with even just our status quo financially. I actually think the gospel calls us to a little bit of discomfort, to not just saying, ah, this is a great house and great food and everything's great, and just sort of resting in that. I actually think a bit of discomfort is good. But not discomfort that just is merely emotional. I do think the Lord's calling us to something concrete, and this is where I want it. If there's one point to take away from the whole sermon, it's coming to this. I think as Christians, we should be on the lookout, wealthy Christians, on the lookout for invitations God is giving us to divest our wealth. Right? None of us is going to become Mother Teresa overnight. Well, some of you may, through a radical thing of the Holy Spirit, great. (laughs) But most of us are called little by little to work our way out of our wealth, actually. Um, I want to tell a story that, for me, is sort of very emblematic of this. Um, 1,600 years ago, uh, in the desert in Egypt, um, there were a lot of regular Christians who felt called to this radical life of monasticism, and they went out into the deserts of Egypt, and they became monks. And they'd already given up almost everything. I mean, they were living in very simple, like mud and straw huts, basic utensils only. They'd weave baskets for pennies to buy vegetables. I mean, it was already very meager. And we have their lives and their sayings catalogued in these great collections of Christian writings. And there was this one monk named Macarius who wandered away from his hut cell at one point. And he comes back and he sees a thief who's got a donkey who's come to his cell and is stealing the handful of goods that he has, like his basic necessities, spoon, plate, you know, some stock of reeds. I mean, just very meager things are being stolen from him. He comes up and he pretends like he too is just some passerby, like it's not his stuff. And he actually helps the thief steal his own stuff and he starts loading up the thief's uh, donkey's saddlebags uh, and sends the thief on his way in peace. Which is crazy. (laughs) But he says in reflection as he sees the thief walking away, we brought nothing into this world, but the Lord gave As he willed, so it is always done. Blessed be the Lord in all things. 
I just love that picture that he, you to be so, ca- so loosely connected to one's own material possessions that when an opportunity comes along to get, let go of more, you just join, join the, the moment of it. Yeah, okay, let's get rid of some more. Getting rid of the very last things he had. I offer that to you as an icon of the life that we're living in wealthy America as fairly well-to-do Christians. I know most of us are sort of struggling practically um, to pay the bills, to make ends meet. But to think, well, what could be cut that I might give more away, that I could be divested of wealth. Little by little, as God brings along the opportunities, um, what Christ is calling us to is to be unencumbered, right? This sounds like a sort of heavy burden, like, oh, 20 minutes of listening to money, like, what a nightmare. (laughs) But Jesus is actually offering us a way to be unencumbered. He's actually saying, you actually will be freer to receive the kingdom of God, freer to enjoy spiritual riches found in Christ Jesus, and freer in the end of our life to receive eternal life and not be like the rich man who ultimately was turned away from Christ. So let us listen to that call for the rest of our lives. Amen.